Hello and welcome to the second season of All I Know. My name is Jen Winkleman and I'm your host for this time where we gather together as if we're around a little campfire and we're there to listen as everyday people tell us some of their stories. Here at this show, we believe that behind every single face, there are stories. And in every story, there are lessons for life that are waiting to be learned by the rest of us. So today, our guest and I will have a largely unscripted conversation, aside from the anchor questions that we use to get into our interviews. And then as our guest story unfolds, if you and I choose to do so, we can catch the truth and knowledge and wisdom that's being shared with us like little fireflies in a jar and then use that as light for our own paths in life. Thanks again for being with us. This is All I Know. Welcome back, everybody. Today, our guest on the show is Bonnie. Hi, Bonnie. Hi, Jen. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for being here. How are you? I'm doing wonderfully. And so thank you so much for asking me to participate. You're welcome. I'm so glad to have you. We're going to dive right into our anchor questions. Who are you, Bonnie? What does our listening audience need to know Hmm. about who you are to make the most of the conversation today? Well, obviously, my name is Bonnie. I am recently retired. Well, retired recently two years now. Um, from the business corporate world. And now I am writing, I'm writing a blog. And I've also begun to write poetry, which is new to me. I am married, I have a grown daughter, and a wildly crazy dog, Charlie, a yellow lab who is really kind of a stinker, but I love him to death. The best pets are stinkers. They have, oh. they're full of personality. Well, Charlie thinks he rules, which I think actually he might. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I've really tried to become the alpha of the pack, but I don't think it's working very well. <laughs> he's, a, he's a joy. He's a joy. Um, and I, I guess kind of a short answer to who I am and what I'm doing. Writing is new to me. Love every bit of it. Do you want to share the blog so that listeners can find you? Oh, I will take any wonderful promotion I can get on that. (laughs) (laughs) It's called crushedbylove.com. So you can find it at www.crushedbylove.com. Awesome. I want people to be able to find your writing. It's in line with, I feel like the conversations I like to have here, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of pulls back the veil on a little bit more of life and Mm -hmm. it's very conversational and transparent. And so I think anybody who likes what we do here is going to like what you're doing there. So thank you. It is pretty transparent and raw. So (laughs) many people are like, I just can't believe that you have the, the bravery to write what you write. I'm like, well, (laughs) it is what it is. I guess I am a little brave and happy to do so. I can't remember who said it, but I read a quote one time about writing. You might know the reference because you're so well read. But it says something about how the process of writing is basically sitting down at the typewriter and then deciding you're going to bleed. (laughs) And I love that imagery because the most engaging writing is so raw it is and I've always wanted to write I've always been a writer sort of in the back of my mind and heart and uh, my grandfather was a writer he was an editor the first editor of the Salt Lake City Tribune way back when and he was a prolific writer wrote his memoirs and he raised his children to become writers and their children became writers. So all my cousins are writers. My daughter's a writer. So I come from a long line of storytellers. I really thought it was going to be sort of a breeze. 
you just sit in front of the typewriter and you have this muse, um, sort of this angel that sits on your shoulder and speaks to you softly in your ear and all your creativity flows right out. And then what you actually do is find out that you sit in front of your computer and stare at a screen saying, oh my gosh, what am I going to write? And it's a process. It's a process of learning. It's a process of having nerve, of having determination. It's been a real adventure for me. It's been a very rewarding adventure for me, um, but it's never quite as easy. Um, I'm very happy that so many of our more contemporary authors are seeing it. It is not necessary to be a drunk anymore when you write like Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, the um, old crew in Spain or Portugal or wherever they were, um, and they would just drink themselves silly and then, you know, get in front of their typewriters. Um, and pour it, it out. Yeah, it was actually Hemingway who did say, don't edit drunk. But it has been an adventure and I've, um, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about myself. I've also learned a lot about my talent. I've learned a lot about my creativity. Well, don't do it right now, listeners. But clearly, after hearing Bonnie talk about the process of writing, you definitely want to visit crushedbylove.com and read some of her stories about her life. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's fun. Bonnie, on the spectrum between ordinary and extraordinary, where would you plot your life? Well, I have cheated because I have listened to your first season. <laughs> So I knew this question was coming and I have given it great thought. I really have. And I believe that really, I've always thought myself as being more on the ordinary spectrum, you know, plotting my life as ordinary. But I think what I am is just recently, actually, in the last month or so, I think I'm plotting towards extraordinary that mm. I'm that what I'm doing is extraordinary. Um, my writing, um, the subject matter of my writing, I think is extraordinary. And that maybe I'm not extraordinary, but that maybe I am becoming a little bit more than ordinary. So I think it's a hard question to answer because I think that question has to take you right out of your own insecurities and the thoughts that you have about yourself, that you're willing to actually come forward and say out loud, I am an extraordinary human being. And I think for some of us, it's a very difficult thing to say and to admit about yourself. But I think I'm getting there. I'm, I'm moving towards the extraordinary. Can't say I'm extraordinary right this very minute. But um, I think that my writing is taking me in that direction. I'm becoming more comfortable with it, and I'm beginning to like what I write. I like that you're trending that way. I think you're the first person to talk about that question in that way, in a little bit less of a black and white term, and looking more in those shades of gray and kind of yeah. tiptoeing. Well, you know, I have to tiptoe through it because I am got these inner critics that tell me all the silly things about myself that I have believed. But I do think there are extraordinary moments in my life in which I have reacted in extraordinary ways, in which I was able to process what was going on in my life in extraordinary ways. So I think, you know, maybe the whole idea of it being more gray than black and white is, is a good way to put it. Because there are moments when I look back and say, well, that was extraordinary that you responded in that way. But basically, you know, I'm just living out my life like everybody else, you know, dealing with a lockdown or a semi-lockdown, going to the grocery store, you know, driving for errands. So there is this sort of basic ordinariness. But in another way, I also think that Defining ourselves as ordinary sometimes is, I don't like the word demeaning, but I think it discounts who we are. 
Because I think that a lot of people, I think we're all extraordinary in our own certain ways. Well, and I think you're right. Saying, well, I'm ordinary, it is limiting. Okay, so how do you define success? Mm. Um, I don't look at success as being, geez, I, you know, I own a company or I, I'm making a ton of money and, you know, I live in a multi-million dollar house and uh, drive a Mercedes. It's not material for me. Um, success for me is more introspective. So I feel that, well, let me back up a little bit. I would say that in my work, when I was working in the corporate world, there were moments where I was doing a project, it turned out to be successful. Everything worked out well with it. And I felt very good about that and would feel that those were successful moments. But success is a undulates with me. Um, there are moments when I think, well, that idea didn't work out real well, um, but this idea did, and I was successful with this idea. So to me, success is, it floats. It floats. I think the good thing about it, though, for me, as I'm learning more about myself, even at this age, is that I don't define myself any longer than I am a failure or a success. I'm plugging along with life and doing the best I can. And I hope that makes sense. I don't know if it does. No, it definitely does. And I like the movement of it and the fact that it's not a permanent state of being. It's a moment in time and it might mm -hmm. be related to projects or things that you do and engage in, but it's not defining of you. It doesn't no. define, it doesn't define you. Not anymore, it doesn't. Used mm -hmm. to, it doesn't now. Yeah. Okay, so we're to the big one, Bonnie. <laughs> <laughs> the big anchor question. What would you say are three events, experiences, themes in your life that you feel have most shaped who you are? And then after you give that to us in a broader sense, let's choose one to unpack a little bit more. Hmm. Well, I think that what I need to do is think in terms of themes, perhaps, because as long as I've lived, there are so many events, so many situations that have woven themselves together. So there's sort of a quilt, if you will. There's threads of events or situations or themes. I know my childhood living with my father who suffered from deep melancholia. That was a huge effect on my life. And I think we can jump over high school and all those crazy years of college and all that. And, and I think if I were to pick a second one, it would be I took a solo trip to Scotland a whole month all by myself, which was a solo vacation, which I've never done before. I hadn't realized that um, I've never really done something all by myself. You know, I've always had somebody along with me, you know, saying, oh, <laughs> you're at the wrong airline gate or whatever it is. But that was a completely solo vacation where I went where I didn't know a soul. I think the third was deciding to write, um, even though we kind of keep going back to that subject. I think that writing my story, um, getting it out loud has been very significant. But what I've realized in the last month, and I know that that's so recent, is that if I were to connect all three of those together, better understanding of how they all related together, I just recently discovered I'm an empath. Mm. Which is like kind of blowing my brain out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I had this deep, mm, because having that experience of understanding what that means and coming to a sense of how that impacts you and what's you and what's the energy you pick up on from other people and starting to sift all of that through there, it really is, uh, you know, forgive my language, but it's a bit of mindfuckery. 
I don't know what to do with it. It is a lot to process. <laughs> it is. And so as that realization came on me, right, because through my childhood, you know, I've always had this sort of suffering cloak around me. And then with the subsequent deaths of my mother and my father and my brother, which were not back to back, but felt like they were. And I took this great introspective solo vacation to Scotland where I thought, oh, you know, this is going to be a month of revelation of personal refreshment and then started to write and I thought that's going to do it too this great journey that I am on and then when I found out and actually it's kind of your fault it's kind of my fault well because I listened to last season's um, podcast of you and you were talking about an empath and I thought you know I hear this word all the time I need to look it up Mm -hmm. so I googled it And it just so happened that there were 15 indicators of an empath. Well, (laughs) (laughs) you you hit a few, huh? Yeah, I hit a few, Uh, probably 14 and a half of them. So now I'm kind of going back and my writing has helped me sort of release on my childhood angst. And (laughs) I have to admit that I look back on it all now and I say, oh, do you become an empath from environment? Do you become an empath because you were just born that way? Is it is it in your DNA? Is there is it learned behavior? So this is like a whole new adventure for me. And mm-hmm. it does help me understand a little bit better of who I am and how I have reacted and still do react to many social situations and how I take on so much of other people. And it's been sort of mind-blowing for me. And I, again, I say I'm not quite sure what to do with it. But it has been, it's just, it's just rocked me. Because, I mean, it was between the eyes. I, I'm like, whoa, this just tagged me. And it's I a like, whole new way of thinking about yourself. Yes. And it really is a little bit jarring. Because it feels so accurate. And how could it be so accurate and so foreign at the same time? I know. I was like, how does this? Google knows way too much about me now. (laughs) You should read the Empath Survival Guide. I can't remember who the author is. Shame on me. But the title of the book is The Empath Survival Guide. And there are some helpful... Well, now the author will be frustrated with me because I don't think it perfectly captures everything. But I do think it is good for somebody who is beginning to understand that trait in themselves. Well, I love the term survival. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah, it is well-placed. Yes. (laughs) So that's sort of it. So it's, it's not really three, but maybe four. They're connected. It's all connected. Yeah. So we have... Your childhood experiences, particularly what you've highlighted for us so far is living with a father who I think the way you described it was deep melancholia, Mm -hmm. that he struggled with deep melancholia and how that impacted you and shaped you. We have your solo trip to Scotland, which you took as an adult in recent history, it sounds like. Yes, 2016, as a matter of fact. We have embarking on the adventure and journey that is writing when that's kind of always been part of who you are, but you finally started to claim it and discovering that you are an empath, which one, (laughs) which one (laughs) do you want to tell us more about Bonnie? Yeah. Which treacherous road are we going to go? (laughs) You know, I think I could touch a little bit on my childhood without belaboring it because it was the childhood and, and, and my experiences there with my father and subsequently uh, with the other members of my family and my immediate family and the reactions to my father and how it impacted our family life and how I socialized and what I learned and how it 
put me on the road to adulthood, which was in itself filled with potholes. But it ties kind of directly into it. It led me to Scotland. Um, Just briefly, my father, I don't know what was wrong with my dad. You know, I think that some people thought he was an intrinsically mean human being, that he was just a nasty guy. Mm. Um, I think that he had his demons and I think he had his own story. And I think that when we look at our own story, we almost have to look at the stories that help build our story, that help set the theme of our story. And so I do go back to my father and understand that his story was uh, one of disappointment, one of uh, rife with insecurities and um, not feeling good about himself. Um, and he brought those forward. I think that I'm not a doctor, although I'm playing one here on this podcast. <laughs> if, if I were to predict or, you know, diagnose him, I think that to say he might have been suffering from bipolar disease may have been not correct. So I, I he would go into these deep, deep, dark moods. Um, silent moods where he wouldn't talk to us for days. Um, the longest, mm-hmm. um, I think my brothers and I realized that he ever went without speaking to us. And I mean, not one word. I think the longest uh, we decided that he had ever gone was four or five weeks without speaking wow. to him with family. Wow. So he were deep, deep, dark places my father went. And there was no one that had the capacity or the education or the background to go down in there with him. We were just a family trying to figure out what we said, what we did, what precipitated these falls into this amazing deep pit of silence and darkness. And uh, my mother was a very gregarious woman and darling. Oh my gosh, she was beautiful and darling and petite. And of course I didn't look like that, but she became very silent. She went into this silent mode and very, very private. So she was not one to communicate with us on what to do about my father. Cause I don't think she knew what to do either. He was profoundly cruel to my brothers. I never figured out why he was. I was his favorite which sort of put things at odds with the other three members of my family. He would eventually come around for me, which was my assigned role in the family as early as five or six years old. They would look at me and they would say, "Uh, your father, uh, we need to talk to him. He needs to come out. He'll talk to you. So you go talk to him. And it was a burden for me and and frightening because I wasn't quite sure if I could do it. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And so sometimes I was successful, sometimes I wasn't, but I danced through my childhood. It was if I could just make everybody happy, then I'm going to be, there we go, successful. Yeah. And odds are if you dance through, maybe then, not that it was your responsibility, but from a child who's really egocentric, if you can keep him happy enough then maybe he won't dip into a period of silence and melancholy. And if he doesn't dip into a period of silence and melancholy, then maybe your mother won't enter into her version of silence, which is the, I don't know what to do with this silence. And things can tick along and carry on well enough. I can bring the family back to normalcy. Mm -hmm. It didn't work. (laughs) I laugh because now I'm of an age where I look back and I go, oh, that was so mean of them to do that to me. But this built within me, I think, um, a real sense of insecurity. I didn't know what to say and when. So socially, I think I became restricted, if that's a word to use with it, that carried with me forever. I was always like, I don't know how to talk to people because I don't know if what I say is going to work um, and get the response that I expect or need. Well, and in your family, when you were young, it's like, I mean, when you say you don't know if you're going to get the response that you need, the stakes were pretty high when you were five years old in terms of your communication. 
gosh, what kind of imprint does that leave on a person as they're growing and coming into adulthood around the weight of getting it right? Because there's really no room for us working things out together, right? Oh, none. I mean, you feel it's all on you. Well, it was all on me. And it wasn't a feeling. It was the actual truth. I mean, my brothers used to do it, too. They would say, go talk to dad. He's got to come out of it. And that, I really want to tell you, lasted all my adulthood until one day, (laughs) I don't know how old I was, but I finally looked at my brothers and I went, for Pete's sake, you're adults. Go talk to him yourself. You can't keep looking at me to solve the problems with our father, but it was an impossibility. He was difficult and moody and temperamental all of his life. When he was out of the pits, he was an absolute delight. He was funny and inventive and took wonderful care of us. We wanted for nothing. There was no physical abuse. It was just emotional abuse. Um, Just. Uh, I caught that too. Just. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's what we say. Hey, it's no big deal. I can Mm -hmm. make it. Mm -hmm. Um, But that sort of carried through even through my first marriage and and even into my current marriage. And when my mother died, we put my father into a nursing home and, and he just was raising holy hell in the nursing home. He lived there for three years. There was no way that I could come from the grieving of my mother who suffered deeply and then have any grieving time because I immediately had to get right into my father to get him through this, his turmoil of being in a nursing home, and my brothers bailed. Then halfway through all this, my husband falls and um, has a horrible head injury, traumatic brain injury, fractures the skull, bleeding on the brain, an ICU, and we're still dealing with the consequences of that. And then um, a few months after that, my middle brother comes down with bladder cancer. And then when my father is still in that nursing home, My father dies, and then six months later, my brother did. It wasn't like they were back-to-back, but every event felt like it was back-to-back. It felt like I was always struggling with this family all my life. And so um, when my brother passed, I told my husband, I said, I've got to get away. I've got to escape. So I went to Scotland, and it was... Probably the best thing I've ever done for myself. I learned self-reliance. I learned so much on that trip. I did my best writing there. I rented a small house on a hill overlooking the city of Inverness. And they had a dining room table where I would sit and write. And I could look out these windows overlooking the city. And it was the Orlando massacres. I don't know if you remember the Orlando nightclub massacres in 2016 happened at that time. Oh, yes, I do remember. Yeah. yeah, There's so many now we tend to forget, but no. um, And I was thinking about them because I, it happened when, of course, I was overseas and I just heard about it through the UK press. And I started thinking about the first responders and It was then that I started writing about how important it was for me to be the first responder to my life. Mm. That I um, had been the first responder to so many others from the time I was little to all my life. Um, Before you were even equipped, you were being a first responder. Oh, yeah. I didn't even have a fireman's hat. I tried everything I could, even through those angst years, right? That my daughter went through like in middle school or high school or something. And I was like, I've got to make her happy. I've got to do something. It was like, I, I felt like I couldn't let her or accept the fact that she needed to go through some of these moments of angst and learn herself. But I was constantly trying to rescue And what I realized in Scotland by being solitary and being in utter solitude was that I had never once ever determined that no one was going to rescue me, that no one was there for me 
to help me think through what I was going through and all of the emotions that I had been carrying for years. And that there was, in essence, if you will, a fire within me that needed extinguishing, that there was damage happening from all this crap. I'm sorry, just the crap of my life. Mm-hmm. And people have had much worse lives. Let me at least get that in parenthetically. But your pain, your sorrow, whatever you're going through is relative. And so just because somebody else has had a worse life doesn't mean that what you're going through is any less important Mm -hmm. to your self-growth and your self-realization. But I realized that there was nobody going to rescue me. Nobody could. My husband could tell me a thousand times how much he loved me. My daughter could tell me a thousand times how proud she was of me or I could be successful in business and, you know, and my boss would give me a great pat on the back, but that wasn't it. That was not a rescue. Those were just words to me. And so when I sat down in Scotland and sat by the river nest, which is the most remarkable place I've ever been in my life. And I would sit on the banks of this river and I said to myself, this river flows on its own accord and it keeps flowing and it's the same river but it's new water all the time Mm. and I sat there and I said to myself sweetheart you're gonna have to get a grip here and you are going to have to realize that you are your own rescue you have got to go head first into the fires of your soul And it made a very large impact on my beginning to understand what I had to do. Did I do it? No. I read, I wrote a lot about it. (laughs) What did you have to do? What were you thinking you had to do? Well, at the time in my prolific writing at this wonderful spot in Scotland, which is so romantic and green and lush. And you're just waiting for Jamie Frazier to show up. And, you know, it, there's this aura, this mystery about Scotland that just stole my soul. And so I figured if I just wrote about it, if I just said to myself, oh, you know, go into the fires of your soul, that probably would do it. It didn't because I didn't know how to rescue. I wasn't trained to rescue myself and I didn't know what that meant. So to be honest with you, I just sort of got back in my little Fiat and drove around and looked at castles and then would come back to the writing and I would kind of bring that up again that I had to be brave. That was the number one thing I felt about myself was that I lacked bravery to look deeper into myself, to forgive my father, to forgive my mother, to forgive my brothers, to learn to let it go and rebuild. But I will say... I didn't do anything about it. <laughs> um, and so I think when it really came down to it, when I uh, retired, not that I wanted to, but it was good I did. And I was thinking, you know, what do I do now? You know, because I've been working for a zillion years and trying to save everybody. And now nobody needs saving. My daughter's grown and is one of the most remarkable human beings I've ever met in my life. She is just a badass, and I don't know who raised her. Somebody must have in the background done something because she didn't end up nearly as nuts as I am. And, you know, here I was idle with people saying, well, what are you going to do now? And I thought, geez, I just spent the last 45 years of my life working my tail off trying to rescue people. So I was left in a void. It was like somebody putting me in a room. It was like opening up a door and saying, this is now your retirement place. You're going to walk in this room and that's where you belong because you're retired. And retired carries with it a lot of implications, a lot of baggage, age, a lot of stuff that isn't particularly freeing. What's in that room, the retired room, that door that opens? Uh, Nothing. (laughs) 
I, I have this visual that, you know, the room is all white, right? And there might be a chair or something, but it's my responsibility now to decorate it. Now I have a responsibility and freedom, if you will, to restart a life. It can look different now. And so instead of beige walls that I put neutral in my home, I can paint them green if I want to. But I really didn't know what to do with it. And that's when I, um, I'm a deeply spiritual human being. Some people will put it even that my daughter thinks I'm a bit of a mystic. And that thread of spirituality has actually saved my life more times than I can count throughout my life by God. And so I was really in a lot of prayer about it because when you're in retirement, you, you realize that you have less years ahead of you than you do behind you. And so suddenly you're like, you know, I got to make the best of what's ahead of me. And I really was in a lot of prayer and, you know, what do you want me to do? You know, do I go and, you know, work at Talbot's or what do I do? Um, and I didn't want to go and work at Talbot's. Mm-hmm. So it was this word just kept coming over and over and over. And it was right, right, right. And so taking this progression, if you will, of this saving myself, I remember I decided, well, I'll just start writing. But it wasn't like writing a journal. It had to be something more. And that's the empath in me, right? Where I thought, whatever I write, it's got to be helpful to somebody else too, right? So I might as well try to rescue somebody through my writing. So I decided the only thing I really knew how to write, never having written fiction or anything, was my story. So that's what I did. But I didn't just journal it. Oh, no. I, <laughs> I had to go get a web page. And I had to publish it on Twitter. Send it out publicly. I sent it out publicly. I sent out all the rawness. I sent out all the struggle. I sent out the humor. I sent out the darkness. I wrote it all. Starting from my first memory of a young child, uh, you know, of a toddler wandering around in a dark house thinking everybody had left her Mm. and wrote the whole thing. When you and I were talking about doing this podcast, you know, I I had thought, oh boy, am I going to make some big speeches here about self-rescue? And, you know, I'm going to have some solutions here that your audience is going to be really impressed with. I didn't have them. And it was interesting because I thought, you know what? I may have written my story, but I have never spoken my story. And there's one thing that I have learned about writers or advice I have been read or been given about writers is whatever you write, be sure that you can read it out loud. Mm. And I never did that to any of my blog posts. And I thought, I've never, I've written about this, which is easy because I'm sort of the narrator of my life and I have detached myself to a certain degree. But to actually take these posts, to take these stories and read them out loud to myself, to me started to signify that I was moving into a burning building. So that's what I did. I took a long walk and I started speaking new words to myself instead of my writing that has always used the words of insecurity or um, self-deprecation or fear or darkness or weakness. I decided that I'm fine reading them out loud because they lost their power. And at the same time, I realized that I had to stop repeating these same words. I just kept repeating them over and over and over again, like they were old eight-track tapes now on digital, which is so easily accessible. And so I just kept understanding that I was repeating words. And so on this walk, just to give you an example, and, and now because everybody's got earplugs, right, 
nobody cares that you're talking to yourself. So here I am walking through my neighborhood, jabbering to myself, hoping that they're all thinking I'm talking on the phone. And I started saying, yes, this was your father. This is what you lived. But where are you now? And I started saying words to myself like, you survived. You were brave. You were brave with your father during those three tumultuous years in the nursing home. And I started using positive words with myself and actually saying them out loud. And it was an amazingly freeing situation for me as though with each new word, I was putting out part of the flame. The interesting thing about that, though, is you have to keep it going. You can't just say the fire's out because even with first responders, when they go in, they put the fire out, but there's still damage that needs to be cleaned out. I was listening to a podcast by Sam and Anne Lamont, Sam being her grown son. And he was sort of struggling with writing and who he was going to be as an artist and all that. And she said, look, we all have our inner critics. And they're bullies. They are nasty. And they say things to you that you've heard before, but they're so repetitive. They can't think of anything new to say to you except that you are a failure, that this didn't work out. So you are a failure. You are inadequate. You are not good enough because these are the things that were said to you as a child and they just come forward. And she suggested for writers, she said, you know, get a mason jar and listen to the words of your inner critic, that bully, and just pretend you're putting them in the mason jar and put it to one side. Well, I thought, nah, that's not good enough for me because that mason jar has to have a lid because I know those bullies will pop right back out and particularly when I'm writing. So I found a jar, it was an actual candy jar. And I just did this recently. And, it, and of course, because it was going to be on my desk, it had to be decorative. And so I put on, um, I put a label on the jar and I'm looking at it right now as I talk to you and it's called Not Today. And then I took different colored paper because I really wanted it to be cute. And I wrote down things. I wrote down the things that were the fire of my soul. And I'm kind of pouring them out now. So one of them was doubt. One of them was fear. Another one was you can't write, which mm. is a big thing. You're not good enough. Oh, you're too old. Hmm insecurity and another one was why bother so they're all cut out and then every morning I take this jar and I empty it out on my desk and then I put them in the jar back in one by one and then I put the lid on and I start my day because my inner critics have been silent not today. It, not today, you don't. Not today. And there has been something that has been so freeing to myself. Um, an odd thing happened. I feel like what I've done is I've understood, hey, my parents were really screwed up. Okay, they were just freaking screwed up. If my parents had at least tried to look through the gaze of sobriety at their children because they were alcoholics on top of everything else if they had if they could have seen us through the gaze of sobriety i think they would have seen our wounds i don't know if they would have done anything about them or had been able to but at least they would have noticed they could have acknowledged they were messed up everybody messes up and are going through all the deaths and oh my gosh and my brother who passed away that was a relationship that just went way downhill and we never reconciled and I've had to deal with that whole idea of I am determined I am strong enough and I'm brave enough and I'm gonna go put these fires out and I'm gonna do it through my writing and I am not going to let these bullies push me around anymore it was a remarkable thing to do this little trick of a jar. 
because now I have new words about myself. And now I have those written down on little pieces of paper, but they're scattered across my desk because those words are life to me. Those words need air. They don't need to be shut off and shut down. I need to be reminded of myself that I am brave, that I am much more than I have ever thought I was. And that really, as hard as this is to say, I'm a pretty damn good writer. And that was like a really big breakthrough for me to say, you know what? I'm pretty good. And that is not an ego thing. That's a revelation. And I've started writing poetry, which is like starting to just flow from my soul. I remember it was recently that I was talking to my other brother who lives in California. And he asked me, he said, how are you doing, sweetie? And I said, you know what? If it weren't for the constant worry and stress that I have over my husband who will never get better from the brain injury, that our lives have been flipped upside down and it's a constant worry to me. It's like how we manage um, day to day. If it weren't for that level, that ceiling that kind of hangs over me, I would say, David, my brother, that I am a happy person. I think that what I have come to is this whole idea of stop listening to the lies and racing into the fire and not being afraid of cleaning up the mess of understanding it better. The forgiveness, oh my gosh, forgiveness, oh my gosh, forgiveness, 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 forgiveness. Forgiving myself for believing the lies. But to take all of that and having dealt with it and say, you know what I am? I'm very comfortable in my skin. I think I like Bonnie. And that is a huge thing. It's It's huge. Yeah, I will always say to anybody, you are the first responder. You are responsible. You may not know how to do it, but there are people that can help you think it through like you do in your work. But I'm starting to look at myself in the mirror and say, even with all these wrinkles and the things that you don't want to happen to your face because nobody's face looks like that in the media, is saying to myself, yeah, but you know what? There's a beauty to you. This face is a reflection of all you have been through. And really, if you will, the victory, the running up the steps like Rocky and saying, I did it. I'm okay. I'm not saying that everything is solved, but boy, am I on my way. I am on my way. You know, I sometimes look back and I think, oh, why can this have happened when I was 40? I don't get an answer to that, but I I have to revel and thank him that it's happening at all. If you were going to bottom line all of this for us, looking oh. at this thread that weaves through these different themes of your life and the conclusions that you began to come to in Scotland that have been even further expressed and kind of seeped into your marrow even more since you returned from that trip. If you were going to offer all I know is what would you say? For one thing, I don't know everything. But all I know right now is that despite whatever is in your life, I think that we are built with bravery. And I think that all I know is that we can do what we need to do. We may need help. But all I know is that running into the fire of who you are doesn't burn you to a crisp. And that's all I know. All I know is what I've done. The building that I built 
out of my insecurities and my victimhood and everything that I have clocked myself into and in the house, if you will, of my sorrows that I built, it's been burned to the ground. There's nothing left of it. I remember it. It's like going to your old neighborhood and passing by your old house and saying, boy, I remember all the memories there. But I'm building a new house, even at this age. And that's all I know. Thank you, Bonnie. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You walked us through a lot of layers, and that's not an easy thing to do. So I, I appreciate you doing that. Before we jump into the questionnaire we used to wrap things up that James Lipton used on Inside the Actor's Studio, do you want to share a poem with us? Oh, oh my. What I do is I take pictures now because I'm trying to learn my creativity. I'm trying to learn how to be more creative, if that makes any sense, because I'm a great business writer. But to be a creative writer is very different. And so I'm trying to tap into that. So one of them is a picture of the Elgin Cathedral, which is north in Scotland. It is spectacular. It is in ruins, but it inspired me to write. And so she sits beside me, hands of gnarled root, eyes of far away, distant and singing. The breeze in the blue mist whispers her one precious life. She of deep river smiles of sorrow and light. She of my shadows and fear. That is lovely. Oh, and it does take your mind so far away, doesn't it? Yeah. You might hear another one? Sure. He places his life at her feet, crying of love, devotion, and power. She of many journeys breathes deep into light, turning her face from the smoking cauldron of shame and fear. Love has no power to beckon her destruction. Free of shadows, she sings in morning sun, rejoicing the strength of her soul. Rejoicing the strength of her soul. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Yeah, that's kind of new for me. All this uh, poetry stuff, it is really flowing out of me on a daily basis. Um, I'm going to keep writing the blog, but I'm going to be adding poetry to it because something's happening. As I free myself up, it's like suddenly I feel free enough to say I'm going to take risks and I am going to write of my soul. And so I am trying it. It's doing something to me. It's like helping my heart sing. So thank you for letting me share that. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for sharing it. I love that you were willing. (laughs) Okay, Bonnie, what's your favorite word? Resilience. What's your least favorite word? Failure. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Nature. You know, I, I love my walks with my dog. Just get me out in nature. Oh, haste you back to Scotland. That's what I really want to do. <laughs> but they shut down the UK. And chances of my going back aren't anytime soon, but that's where get out where there's nobody around what turns you off no people who fail to have discussion who aren't willing to who take a word or a a phrase and then they sort of make their preconceived notions of who you are or what you're thinking And that's it. What's your favorite (laughs) curse word? Shit. But I'm learning a different one. (laughs) And I'm not going to say it. Okay. (laughs) I'm not going to say that one. That one, that secondary one is popping up a little bit more frequently than it should. But shit is my favorite word. What sound or noise do you love? (gasps) 
my birds in the spring. Oh my gosh, they are so noisy. They are absolute delights. I hear them now. They're coming on stronger. And I laugh. I think, oh my gosh, this little guy is outside my window and he is singing at the top of his lungs. Oh my gosh. Nature never, ever went into shutdown. But they sing joy every single morning. They are looking up at the sky and they are they are reveling in their lives. And I love it. What sound or noise do you hate? Traffic. Sound of busy street traffic. I don't like it. Now, I know you're retired, but what profession other than your own would you most like to attempt? If I were younger, okay, because age has to do with that, I would be an actress. I would, I've always wanted to be an actress. I've always wanted to be on the stage of film. Always. I never got support for it, even though I have or two cousins who are actors. But um, I just don't want to be actress. What profession would you definitely not like to do? Be a vet. I can't, I, I could not go through what they go through. Having the suffering, I, the suffering of animals to me is a heartbreak. You know, I may be a little bit stronger in character now, but I couldn't do it. I, I just couldn't do it. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as you pass through the pearly gates? Wow, that just makes me cry. You know, I think... Just wanting to say welcome home, sweetheart. That's what I want to hear. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Thank you, Jen. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) I really appreciate your time. And I I think today's conversation is going to be powerful for a lot of people on a lot of different levels. I mean, there's so many... I guess using the analogy of threads, there's so many threads we could tug on and use, you know, in our lives. I think your exploration with creativity is something people could sink their teeth into. I think the idea of taking an honest look at the fire in your own soul and cleaning house, you know, cleaning up the house, because the truth is that we all have things. That's just part of the human experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so having the courage to step into the mess, whatever that looks like. And for you, it was a fire. And for someone else, it might be a flood or something else. And it doesn't really matter. But just having the courage to face that and then the redemption that can come from facing it. Mm-hmm. I think that idea of rescuing yourself being your own first responder is so huge. And I mean, I'm wrestling with that just even in the conversation. I had to kind of work to stay with you because once you planted that seed, my brain really wanted to start working with that concept in my own world and start Mm -hmm. challenging some of my own things. So I was like, stay with Bonnie. You're talking to Bonnie. (laughs) (laughs) And there was one other thing that I don't want to forget to mention because I feel like it really jumped out at me and I had it just a second ago and it floated away. Words? Words. 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 The power of words, being intentional with our words, particularly in the ones that we speak to ourselves, being purposeful about taming is not the right word jailing the inner critic and getting creative with ways to silence the critic or turn the volume down on the critic's voice. And I think those are things that all of us, there's just a lot of fuel for working with here, Bonnie, from our conversation. And I know, I'm sure there are plenty of other little nuggets too that I'm not picking up right this moment, but that will jump out at me and play back. And I'll be so mad that I didn't say something about them right now. But (laughs) thank you for giving us so much to think about and for speaking from the well of your own heart. 
Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity, Jen. It was a pleasure. I want to thank you for listening in today. When our guests agree to be vulnerable with us and to share from the well of their life experience, one of the best ways that we can acknowledge that kind of courage is to communicate that what has been shared has fallen on ready ears and a heart that is open. So if there was something that struck a chord today, please interact with the posts on social media that are related to this episode so that you can let that storyteller know about the impact that he or she had on you. If you haven't connected with us already on one of these platforms, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram under the handle All I Know Podcast. Please remember that the ideas, opinions, and views shared today belong solely to each speaker. And while we hope our listeners find fuel for working with in their own lives from every episode, it should be noted that this podcast is not a therapeutic intervention and it's not a substitute for advice or counsel from a mental health professional. All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, which is a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado, and our team works primarily with children and their families that have been impacted by developmental or early childhood trauma, and we specialize in adoption and foster care issues. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you're interested in developing a relationship as a sponsor for this project, or if you're interested in being a guest and one of our storytellers on All I Know, you can reach us at know at inwardboundco.com. I'm going to give that to you one more time. All I know at I-N-W-A-R-D-B-O-U-N-D-C-O.com. And you'll never miss an episode if you visit the website so that you can subscribe or follow the show through your preferred streaming platform. And the way to find us on the web is to go to allIKnow.podient.co. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. And in the meantime, this is Jen for all of us at the show reminding you, catch all the light you can.